0: Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for stories like this, stories that, that John, the disciple that was arguably closest to Jesus, gave us, gives us this insight into these, these intimate relationships between Jesus and the people that he comes across. So I, I pray as we read this today that we would put ourselves in the story. This is what John wants. He wants to, us to put ourselves in the place of this woman at the well, he he wants us to put ourselves in the place of Jesus in moments in this um, encounter. So help us this morning as we read your word that we, it would change our minds, it would change our hearts, and it would change the way we live when we leave this place. We love you. It's in your sons and we pray, Amen. So as obviously we're continuing on in the 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 series of going through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and. The message today is for outsiders. Maybe you could even say social outcasts. I want you to think for a moment. Maybe it's not hard for some of you to think of a time when you've been the outsider, when you've been an outcast. As I was preparing this week, I I thought back to the, the time, and it was a long time. It was a year that I spent in China after I graduated from college, and it was, a, it was a, a smaller town in China. It was still a big town, but relatively to the other cities in China, it was small. And me and the team I was a part of were the only known Westerners in the city. And so everywhere we went, we stuck out, everywhere. Like we couldn't leave our apartment without people staring, just curious, like we had come out come from another planet. And over time it felt awkward early on we had that honeymoon period it was like kind of fun that you were kind of the center of attention but after a while you just wanted to leave the house and not have people stare at you not see you as a novelty not see you as some kind of alien that they need to come up and poke and and try to figure out you just kind of wanted to blend in and be left alone and that's the story I think of when I'm thinking about being an outsider And I'm sure some of you have those stories as well where you were kind of put in a situation where you may have been an outsider, but that was my choice. I chose to go to China as a missionary, and as missionaries know, like you kind of put yourself in that situation when you go to a different group of people. You're going to get those looks, right? But in a room this size, I'm sure some of you, maybe a lot of you, have had really baggage from being an outcast, and maybe it came as a result of the church. Maybe you have trauma as it comes coming from Christians, coming from the church, coming from church leadership in your past. Maybe you're kind of still afraid to come into a church or a group of Christians because there's some deep shame involved in your life and and maybe stuff you've done or stuff you're currently doing, and you just feel like maybe this place isn't for you. Maybe being in a group of, of Christians isn't for you because you're not good enough. And if that describes you, I am really glad you're here today. I'm always glad you're here if that describes you. But for sure today, because this story is for you. It's for outsiders. It's for outcasts. It's for people that, you, that, that think they don't belong in another group of people. And the great thing about this story is not only is Jesus connecting with an outsider, he This outsider, after the encounter with Jesus, actually turns into one of the best missionaries we've seen in the Scriptures. And it's an amazing story. And actually, it's the longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. I didn't know that until this week. Longest conversation, ongoing conversation, that he has with anybody in the Gospels. It's obviously... John thought it was important enough to, sh- to, to kind of share this whole encounter that Jesus had with this woman at the well. So let's begin in verse 1, and we're going to walk through this pretty quickly, and I'm going to stop at points and highlight things as we go along. Verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard, heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Things were getting a little bit hot. He, he, didn't, wanna, he didn't want the confrontation to happen then, so he kind of gets out of Jerusalem, gets out of the Judea area, starts to head to Galilee to kind of get away from kind of the, the noise and the, the commotion that was drawing the attention of other people in that area. Verse 4 and he had to pass through Samaria. We'll come back to that statement again. He had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5 So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, to understand this story, we have to understand the background of this story. And John is cluing us in a lot here to um, what was happening and where this woman was from and what her background was. So I want to give a little bit of background to um, Samaria and the people of um, Samaria, the Samaritans. I have a map up here um, that will help, I think, visually as I kind of talk through this. So in 931 B.C., like 1,000 years before Jesus, um, Solomon dies. His sons are in conflict to decide who's going to be king over the the, the nation of Israel. It's one nation at that time. Well, through this conflict, the, na- the the kingdom of Israel is divided into two: Judah being the southern Israel, being the northern kingdom. And as you can see that um, in this in this um, on this map, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom of Judah, okay? So they kind of get to keep Jerusalem in this deal, and then you have this whole kingdom of Israel to the north. And because the north lost their capital in this split, they lost their, their center of kind of their holy place, their center of worship, they decided to create another one. And it, on the map, you can see it's, it's in this Samaria. You see about in the middle of the kingdom of Israel there in the blue, you see Samaria with the star. Samaria becomes their Jerusalem, it's the place where they worship. It's the center of kind of their, their holy places. And then a few hundred years after this, in, a, in, a, in the middle of 700s, um, Assyria comes in and captures the northern kingdom of Israel. Captures it, and the Assyrians take some of the, the people from um, Israel away, and they bring in some of their, other, their own people from different other places. Over the, the course of seven or 800 years, they, of course, intermarry. They intermarry with other people from that part of the world, and the Jews intermarry with those people. And you can imagine 700 to 800 years before the time of Jesus, this occurs. There's a long history of of the former Jewish people intermarrying with other peoples. These people still feared God. They still feared God because they were, they were, they were Jews, right? They, they grew up with all the things, especially the Pentateuch. They Those first five books, they still thought of those books as God's word. They also added some of the other gods from the Assyrians to kind of their their, their buffet of gods. And this place of Samaria became their kind of center place, their holy place. And the people of Judah, you can imagine, didn't like this. They didn't like them intermarrying. They didn't like them um, adding gods to their um, buffet of religion. And so the, the the people of Judah, they did not like the people of the north, the the Samaritans they would call them, because they were half breeds. They weren't pure in blood like the southern kingdom was, and the southern kingdom tended to remain like that throughout the years, even though there were people coming in and conquering them as well. So this story when it says Jesus went through Samaria and he encountered a Samaritan woman, there is 7 800 years of backstory. It touches on things like racial issues, ethnic issues, historical issues, class socioeconomic issues. There's a lot loaded into this story that we don't always understand when we hear Jesus, who is a Jewish man, from the southern kingdom, it's where he grew up. Now he's coming into contact with this woman at this well who's a Samaritan. In verse 4, we saw that he had to pass through Samaria. Most commentators think that um, you didn't have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. But probably in prayer or kind of a, a prompting from his father, from God the Father, Jesus decided that he needed to go through Samaria. Samaria. So let's see now how Jesus takes this outsider, this outcast, and really turns her into a missionary. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Remember, they were tired, they were hungry, and so it made sense that they were going to go probably a mile away to the Sychar to grab some food. And Jesus said, I'm going to stay here by the well. There's a reason why she's coming to the well at noon. It says the sixth hour, which they start their clock at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would have been noon. And if you would have done a labor-intensive activity, normally, like going all the way to the well to get water, you'd done this in the cool of the day, in the morning or in the evening. So it's strange that she's there at noon. That would have tipped everyone off and tipped Jesus off as well. She's also a woman, which men and women didn't interact as much. Women were second-class citizens at this particular time, and she was a Samaritan, and we've just talked about the background of that. So she's at the well at an odd time, a very time an outcast would go. She's a woman, and she's a Samaritan, and Jesus is a man, and he's Jewish, and now they are interacting. It's interesting, John, we talked about in the gospel, arranges things a little bit differently, right? So just one chapter ago, we have Jesus interacting with Nicodemus. A highly thought of, very well-esteemed, well-thought-of religious leader, holy man, well-thought-of. And now, just a chapter later, John puts this story about a Samaritan woman, an outcast who's ashamed to even be around people because of her background and her story. John's trying to show us that everybody on the spectrum, doesn't matter who you are, from the highly hyper-religious to the outcast. The gospel is available to all, and Jesus really doesn't care who he's interacting with as far as being contaminated or what people think of him. He's going to act act and to connect with anybody he comes across. Verse 9, let's keep going. The Samaritan woman said to him, "'How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria?' For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she gets it, right? She obviously understands this is awkward. This is uncomfortable. This is unusual. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So this is a a famous well. This is the well of Jacob on Jacob's land. If you go to to that area today, you will find that well today. It's still operational. You can still go there, and you can still kind of, it's become obviously more of a, a tourist spot. But you can go there and check that out even today. And notice that Jesus doesn't demand a drink, doesn't command her to give him a drink. He asks for one. He's he's a human, right? Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's thirsty, like we all get. And he doesn't kind of posture up and kind of put this aura of power, which he did have. Obviously, he could have done that, especially to this woman and how things are kind of laid out in that culture. But Jesus simply asks her very kindly for a drink. He puts himself in a low position, his posture. He kind of comes down kind of socioeconomically to her level to engage her. Then he talks about living water, and this is it's key because he is making the connection to the well that she's drawing water from, but this living water is key. This is, probably means um, the imagery like a, like a running stream or a brook or a spring. It's not stagnant. It's moving. It's clean. It's the kind of water that you would want to camp by. It's the kind of water that would, that would be a great source to be around. So it's, it's living water. This is kind of the, the idea that he's trying to um, communicate to this woman. Now, at this point, she's becoming interested. You can kind of see it. She's becoming interested, um, and her faith isn't strong. Faith is not strong. She doesn't understand everything, but he wants her to ask. He's saying, if only you would ask. You don't have to have this giant faith. You don't have to figure everything out. You don't have to have all the gaps filled in in your mind. Just ask who I am. If, I, if you would have just asked me and he knew who you were talking to, I would have given you living water. It's like Jesus says in other parts that if we have faith just like tiny as a mustard seed, we can move mountains. It's not the size of our faith that is important. It's the object of our faith that is important. If our faith is in Christ, then we can move mountains. It doesn't matter how strong that faith is. We see this over and over in the scriptures. Verse 13 Jesus is going a little bit deeper now, right? He's now explaining this, this idea of living water, and she wants it. Now, she wants it because it's going to be more convenient to her, so she doesn't have to come up here every day to get the water out of the well, but he's drawing her in. And you notice Jesus just teases it up really well here. Like to talk about living water, to talk about his grace and his mercy and the kingdom of God, he he uses what's available to him, this illustration of water. She's at a well, so it makes sense that he would actually use this illustration of living water in this moment, which is really helpful for us because we all thirst. When I say, what does it mean to be thirsty for something? We can all get it. We can all probably remember back very recently to the last time we were thirsty Thirsty for something to drink. And Jesus is saying that there is only one thing that will satisfy your thirst. Only one thing, and it's the living water that I offer. Everything else will pale in comparison. Everything else may satisfy you for a moment, but it'll go away. You'll have to have more. You'll have to have more. And then you'll have to have more the next time because it'll satisfy you for a little bit. Uh, Not as long, and then you'll have to have it again and again and again. I saw a tweet this week that said, uh, a quote by C.S. Lewis, another guy tweeted quoting him. He says, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the devil's formula. Basically saying that an ever increasing craving, like you, you want more and more, but every time you have it, the effects of it are diminished over and over and over. This is often the cycle of addiction, right? And we see this when we look at people in our culture that are that are lifted up, like um, maybe. Take like the the Hollywood stars. You see influencers. You see people who seemingly from the outside, they have everything. They're rich. They're famous. They could have anything they want at any time, yet they're not happy. They're not satisfied. Suicide rates, even among that group, are high. So the satisfactions that we, we crave and that we thirst for in this world won't satisfy, at least in the long run. Nothing will but this living water that Jesus is talking about. And, and he says here, oftentimes we, we think, well, you'll never thirst again, Jesus says. And we all as followers of Jesus will say, wait a minute, like I, I thirst a lot. Like I thirst after other things. I, I don't do this right every day. I don't feel like I'm satisfied all the time now. So we can't read this necessarily literally. We have to understand that what Jesus is saying is you will have inside of you this flowing stream of water that you have access to any time. You have access to this spring of living water that will never cease flowing. And you can get that at any time if you are a follower of Jesus. So she's starting to come around. Jesus is kind of pulling her in here. Now Jesus presses to the root of the issue. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus starts to press his finger on her issue here, right? He really kind of starts digging in, but it's still in this gentle, patient way. He's not trying to shame her. Remember, this is not a public conversation. This is a private conversation, Jesus isn't trying to to make her feel more shamed or get people to look at her in a certain way. He's probing because he loves her. He's digging because he's trying to draw out her pain, her hurt, her baggage, her brokenness, her idolatry. He wants to draw that out so that she can deal with it. It's the same thing for us. Jesus wants, through his spirit, to draw out the junk that, is set, that sets deep down inside of us that we often don't want to deal with. And it's painful dealing with it. It's painful to admit things. It's painful to dig into the shame that we often feel. But that's part of the relationship that God wants to have with us. God the Father wants us to come to him so, we, so he can deal with those things. And Jesus is modeling that for us here. He's not condemning her. He's, living, he's leading her to the living water. And she can't be led there if she won't admit, and she doesn't realize where her shame, where her inadequacy, where her identity is actually coming from. And she starts to dodge a little bit. You kind of notice. She kind of starts, he's like, I don't, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. Like, you're wrong, right? And he's like, I know, I know. Like, I know that the guy that you're with is not your husband right now, but you've had five of them, right? So he, he starts to really reveal that he has some, he's different, right? He kind of knows about her and she can't figure it out. Verse 20. she again dodges here. Kind of changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. She's still caught up in physical location, which was a huge deal, right? They, they, they created their own city, they created their own holy city of Samaria to do their worship in because they no longer had access to Jerusalem. So physical locations and where's the right place to worship and what temple, that was a big deal. So it's not a, it's not a crazy question, but she's still trying to dodge the real issue here. But Jesus kind of quickly answers that about, hey, believe me, one day it's not going to matter where we worship. He answers her to say that worship is not a where anymore, but it's a Who? And he really digs in here to really show us that the, 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 the key problem, the foundational issue of our thirst is a worship problem. The root of our need, the root of our emptiness problem is a worship problem. It's underneath. It's what we love. It's what we desire. It's what we fear. It's what we look to for approval. It's what we look to from, for control. In verse 22, he says, we worship what we know, simply meaning that God has revealed himself to us in a unique way. And we worship based off the revelation that he's shown us. That's why he says it's been revealed to the Jews, which it had been. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's so much in here that we could get into. Like you see all three members of the Trinity here, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right? You see Spirit and truth there, right? Like Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So you see reference to Jesus there. You see reference to the Spirit there. And it says that God, God the Father, is seeking worshipers. He's seeking people to worship him. And what he's saying here is that the spirit is active in our, in our lives deep down to, to go deep and to do the deep work so that it brings out faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus. And that produces worshipers, which God is seeking. God is not seeking good people. He's not seeking moral people. He's not seeking nice people. He's not seeking passive people. He is seeking worshipers. That's who God is seeking verse 25 the woman is the woman said to him i know the, that messiah is coming he who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all things and this is this is the moment this is kind of the crescendo this is the 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 the, the big point of the story of the interaction because she is so close here she's so close she even says yeah i can't wait for all these things to happen when the christ comes Like she's in, she's close, she's right there. And she's like, yeah, when he comes, like he's gonna gonna reveal these things. He's gonna tell us all things. And then verse 26, Jesus drops the bomb. This is so beautiful. The one who's been talking to her, the one who's accepted her, the the man who's actually engaged with her in an appropriate way, not wanting anything from her in return, not wanting anything sexually from her, not wanting to use her in any way, A man that just looks at her and loves her and treats her with respect. And in verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. I am he. I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Let me be the husband that you've never had. Let me be the better husband. Trust in in me. Trust in my version of, of what being a man is, not what you've seen and what you've experienced in your life. I'm the Messiah for all peoples, not just the religious, not just for the women who can come to the well in the morning because they have nothing to hide and they're not full of shame. I've come for everybody. I've come from all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of levels of shame and brokenness. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back, been at the food court, hanging out. They miss everything, right? They come rolling back in. They marveled at what he, he was talking with a woman. So they even got it. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. What's going on here? And then, but no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So they kind of leave it alone. Verse 28 So that the woman left her water jar and went away into town. that She left. She dropped everything and left. And it appears the disciples were kind of walking up as they saw this. She leaves her water jar. We shouldn't miss this, this, this point here, right? It's, just, it's symbolic. She's saying, I don't need these anymore. Like this kind of water that these kind of containers filled. I don't need them anymore. I'm just going to leave them and take off and run. I'm leaving the old stuff behind because I have found the Messiah. Nothing else is important right now but the fact that I have met the Christ, the Messiah, who's changed my life. She's changed, he's changed me. She leaves those things aside. She puts those things behind her. She has bigger things to think about now. F.D. Bruner, in his commentary, says this. He puts it really well here. He says, life with God, <clears throat> Jesus has taught us again and again, is not for spiritual champions. People, And then he quotes a few verses. People who are well have no need of a doctor, but people who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the spiritually rich, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is for admitted failures, for, for confessed incompetence. In short, for people like all of us when we are honest. The incomprehension and incompetence, almost the rudeness and even perhaps the slight contempt detectable in both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman may all be intended by John to say to readers, Jesus's promises are for problematic people. Get used to it and be grateful. So it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter how, where you're at, how awesome or religious you think you are, or how broken and shame-ridden you are, Jesus is for you. God's grace is for you. His mercy is for you. Just like us, we are outsiders. We were immoral. We were thirsty. We were all of these things at one time, and still are to some degree, right? We still thirst. We still chase after things that don't satisfy. That was our identity at one time. We were people who chased after the things and looked for things of the world to satisfy us. But if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, that is not you anymore. There's another place in the Gospels where thirst is brought up, and it's when Jesus is on the cross. He's about to die, and he says, I'm thirsty. They take the sponge with the, kind of the sour, vinegary substance, and they give Jesus kind of a, just a little bit of a taste of it to satisfy his thirst. And that's when the Gospels tell us, he says, it is finished. And then he died. You see, Jesus was crucified, was put on that cross for people like this woman, for pe- people like Nicodemus, for people like you, for people like me. Jesus was put on the cross for people like us. And trust me, the things that you look to in this world for satisfaction, they're not going to die for you. They're not going to sacrifice for you. They want to feed off of you. They need to feed off of you. They will not die for you. They will not reconcile you to God. The cool thing about this story doesn't end there. Now she's a missionary. Verse 29, come you can almost see that the living water's overflowing now, right? It says, living waters that will well up inside of you, Jesus says. This is kind of water he's offering. And now we see it. firsthand evidence here that it is, it is overwhelming her. It is welling up inside her. It's overflowing. And this is, this is where her posture now as she says these. He's come. She goes back to her town. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. She's getting after it she's evangelizing she's just she's just sharing right and jesus's disciples are still working. they're like like have you eaten jesus and they're just like we just we, we we would be in the same situation right they've missed all of this and they're worried about making sure jesus gets a sandwich right and he th- th- but jesus says to them in verse 34 my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest look I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Like Jesus isn't saying that food is bad or that like food is somehow is some unspiritual thing and you shouldn't do it. He's just so excited. He's so into it because Jesus, he's seeing that the harvest is beginning to take. And he wants to get after it. He wants to go. So he's not thinking about eating. Same thing that happens to us. We're excited about something. When our, when our stomach and kind of heart's fluttering, we often don't think to eat. Like something else, something else is satisfying us in this, that moment that we don't need the food. And here it's the living water and seeing God redeeming people and God bringing all kinds of people into his family. And Jesus has said, hey guys, that food's great. I'm sure it tastes good, but man, there's something else right now that's going to satisfy you even more. verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So it started with her going back and telling her story, what had happened. And then she brings them to Jesus. She introduces them to Jesus and Jesus takes care of the rest. Many people followed from that town that day. And it all started with this woman who had overflowing living water now inside of her, went back and was bold and shared her story. So there's a few things we can learn here. What do we learn about Jesus and this woman about being missionaries, right? We've seen Jesus's love for the broken, for the outcast, like pursuing us, pursuing the outcast. But the second part of this story is about her being a missionary. Here are a couple of quick things. Uh, Jesus, we saw early on, he went to those who weren't like him. right? He didn't have to go through Samaria, but he did. He chose to engage in an area that he knew there was going to be pushback and differences and awkwardness. Do we do that as missionaries, as people who are sent ones, as people who have the Holy Spirit inside of us and have that living water? The second thing, how Jesus spoke to her. He initiated, but he took a posture of learning and curiosity First. He didn't come out making bold statements. He brought her in. He was curious. He asked questions. He, he discovered things about her. She tried, tries to dodge Jesus at a few points, and he sticks to the main thing. He didn't chase her rabbits. He let her ask the questions. He let her do that thing, but he, he kept bringing her back to this living water, the thing that satisfies her. And then he uses what he has there to connect with her, right? She's at a well. Why not talk about how living water and water coming from the well is like my grace and, and my joy that fills you and now is overflowing inside of you. Another thing, he hits at the deeper issue of her relational brokenness. He doesn't stay on the surface. He finds like, the, the, the pain point and he presses on it. Again, gentle, but in a very direct way. Like a skilled doctor with a scalpel, he applies the gospel, which is this living water metaphor, directly to her brokenness. He uncovered it, she started to feel it, and then he, he preached, he proclaimed the good news in a very direct way to her. He finally got to the gospel, he finally got to what would satisfy her, but he didn't start there. Now what do we learn from her? We learn that John wants us to be like this woman, He wants us to see ourselves in her. He wouldn't have spent this much time laying out this story and talking about how many people believed after this. I think number one, let's get very practical, two things. One, take inventory. Take inventory of your junk. Take inventory of what you look to for satisfaction, what you look to for thirst. What do you hunger after? What do you thirst after? And just spend some time alone thinking about that, journaling about that, being honest with that. Be aware of it. Name it. Like this is, this is where I run to. This is what I look to other than Jesus when I need something, when I need thirst, when I hunger. And then bring that to God. Don't just wallow in your shame. Bring it to God. God, I, I, I seek these things over you. I love these things more than your son. These things have more power over me than your spirit. Help me. Help me, that's what we call repentance, right? Help me be the kind of person that looks for my thirst and meets that thirst in Jesus rather than other things. So number one, take inventory, which this is exactly what Jesus led her into. He forced her to deal with her deep issues. Number two, we go tell people what's happened to us. We evangelize, we talk about Jesus, we proclaim the good news. And Again, look at her, she's not theologically educated, she's never been discipled, She spent spent no time with the disciple. She's never even seen what a disciple looks like. She's just spent a little time with Jesus and she's changed and she is gone. She is proclaiming the gospel. So some of us, I think, and I'm I'm guilty of this, like we got to know the answers. We got to gear up. We've got to know our who we're talking to and have all the answers. No. Obviously that's helpful and we need to work on apologetics and stuff, but sometimes we just need to tell us how did Jesus tell other people how did Jesus change you? The deep stuff, the junk, your shame. Guess what? Because there's probably a lot of other people around you that are dealing with shame as well. You're not good enough. They've made mistakes. They're relationally broken. They've made made a train wreck of all the relationships in their life. Be honest with them of where you were at and how Jesus is changing you. Here's my prayer. I pray that we would be the kind of people that are followers of Jesus who would drink deeply from the well and continue to drink deeply from the well. And I pray that, that as we experience the living waters overflowing within us, that we would be the kind of people that would engage people the way Jesus did with this woman at the well. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for, again, stories like this. Just help us. Help us be the kind of people that are honest with ourselves to receive the grace and mercy that you want to show us in Christ. And I pray that, that we would allow your spirit to empower us and allow those living waters to move us to love people well. Not just the people that look like us, act like us, live around us, do the same things that we do. No, f- f- cause us to move into places that, that, where people are maybe not like us, who are different than us, who look different than us, who, who wear different things than us. Whatever that is, Lord, help us, m- help. I pray your spirit would move us into those places. That the motivation would be simply to share the living water, share the change that that you have brought about in us, that we would just share that with other people and pray that his spirit would also change them. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.